Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good evening, everyone. It is Friday, June the 16th, 2023. It is currently 10 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central Studio, located right here in Abilene, Texas. The Book of Jeremiah. It it was such a simple idea. Let's spend three months in the Book of Jeremiah, and I think we've accomplished a lot of good things. I, I am not in any way going to deny that. I'm not going to take that away. I'm not going to throw out the good things we have accomplished. But in working on the book of Jeremiah, obviously in a very condensed period of time, there have been some challenges. I I won't even say there've been ups and downs. There's just been some challenges. There've been some attempts to, or there've been some times where I thought we would advance the study and we didn't really advance it the way I thought we were going to. But even though we're not as far into the study as I would like to be, even though we haven't covered as much as I would like to have covered, I, I think we just continue on, right? I mean, if we, if we get a little behind, if we, if we're not exactly where we are supposed to be based on just a, you know, a time placed upon us by me, maybe we can just relax that a little bit. I'm not saying we we go to a full-blown verse-by-verse exposition of the entire book because I still think that would be detrimental. And the only reason is because Jeremiah, because of its structure, because of all of the different, you know, literary genres, all of the, the, the figurative language, all the different figurative language types, all the things going on in the book of Jeremiah— If you get too far into the trees, if you get too far into the weeds, you're going to miss the whole forest. You're going to miss everything. So there are times, yes, we're kind of, we're kind of going all the way in and we're looking at some very specific details, but I'm trying to then immediately pull us back out and say, whoa, 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 whoa. Look at the overall structure. Look at the overall theme. Don't miss the big picture. And it's hard to know because Sometimes we see some stuff in there and I'm like, oh, wow, we, we really need to be looking at that. Come on, let's, let's go, let's go, let's go. And, and then I have to say, no, guys, 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 uh, come on, let's, let's go back. Let's go back. So I'm trying to find that balance. I'm also trying to find the balance of what I'm covering here on the podcast versus what I'm covering from the pulpit. I mean, there are lots of, uh, there's different parts of Jeremiah that just works, I feel, better in front of a live audience. But if that doesn't always present itself, then what I need to do is figure out then how to advance the study right here in the studio in an empty room by myself, right? I I have to figure out because what happens is you get yourself in the frame of mind going, okay, I'm going to be covering this in front of people at Victory Baptist Church. Here we go. This is going to be, and then something happens and it doesn't work out that way. Then I have to go, well, what do we do? The worst thing to do is to fall further and further behind. So I'm going to continue to try to get us. I don't even want to say, I don't want to, I know I've used the language, but I don't even really want to say catch up. I don't, I don't want to try to catch us up. I just want to advance it. And no matter how far behind we may be because of just some arbitrary time that's been placed upon the study, 
I, I'm not, I, I'm not going to really try to catch up. I'm just going to try to advance us and by, and as we advance through the book, trying to maintain a balance between when we go in and look at very specific details and when we pull back out and look at the larger picture. That's what I'm going to try to do. Will it be perfect? No. Okay. But I, I think, I think at least my own personal feelings, my own personal feelings is I think Bible study is best when it's not so polished and um, produced. I think Bible study is better when it's more real. And sometimes when it's real, it's a little messy. And sometimes you're trying to figure this out and you're stumbling through this and you're stumbling over that. I I feel sometimes that's more real, more organic and actually better. So I hope that over uh, between today and by the time Sunday night is over, I hope, I hope that we have advanced much further into our study. You are happy with the advancement. You're learning much. And remember, I still want you to be considering the book of Jeremiah, understanding the who, what, where, when, and how, understanding the book itself and who it's written to and its historical context and what's going on. But also, I want you looking at yourself and hopefully being challenged by this, being convicted by this, growing spiritually. Look, I'm telling you, if that is not happening, I I, I just, I, I, I hate to say this, then if, if for some reason, just you and Jeremiah is not leading to your spiritual growth, just stop the study and go find something that will. Because I really believe that this summer of 2023, all of us need some, some probably help in our spiritual lives. So I'm really hoping that we can get that from the book of Jeremiah. So I'm hoping you're doing that. Hopefully you're keeping up with your reading, right? I, I need you to be, I need you to have read Jeremiah 1 all the way through chapter 12, multiple times by Sunday, multiple times by Sunday, over and over and over again. And I hope you have noticed that in podcast episode, after podcast episode, after podcast episode, if there is any way for me to connect anything to the book of Jeremiah, I have done that. I've tried to be obviously still respectful to its context and not rip anything out of context, but I've definitely just tried to keep Jeremiah right at the forefront of your mind, having you read it and think about it. So even when we're talking about other subjects, I still feel the book of Jeremiah is being mentioned. Even when we were reviewing an absolutely horrible, horrible sermon today, they quoted from the book of Jeremiah. So that, that was just perfect timing. So please just keep reading and reading and reading. So here's what I'm going to try to do. Between now and Sunday morning, I, well, uh, well, let me say this. Between now and maybe Sunday night, between now and Monday, There's going to be a mixture. Uh, There's going to be some times I'm turning on the microphone to address just one specific thing, maybe one specific verse, maybe one specific phrase, maybe one specific word, right? Then hopefully between the three hours at Victory Baptist Church, we can be making it and addressing and covering some chapters and a much more overview type of way, getting a basic idea, basic, maintaining the basic flow of the discussion and the narrative. And then on the podcast, kind of drop back in and cover some more specific things. So I thought there's, because there were some specific things that I think we've had to skip 
that has bothered me. Now, I have offered some of these things up as assignments for people to work on. Some of you have emailed me some of your work. Some of you, I think, have just moved on. But we've got to go back to Jeremiah chapter 2, all right? Because there is a verse in Jeremiah chapter 2 that I still want everyone to work on. So I'm going to do a little bit of the work here. And we're just I just picked a random sermon. And we're going to just review a little bit of what they say and see how they address the problem. So are you ready? Let's go back to Jeremiah chapter 2 and start in verse 4. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 4. We're going to read everything down. I'll maybe just try to give you some basic overview here, some basic thoughts, all right? But Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 4. Hear ye the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. Now, please note, whenever Israel is mentioned, remember, sometimes Israel is mentioned in kind of a generic way where it can just be, it could be Judah, Israel, it could be anybody. Most of the time, it's referencing specifically the Northern Kingdom. Now, remember, at the time of Jeremiah, the Northern Kingdom, I think we misspoke at one point in our study, and I said something that they'd been in captivity for like 300 years. That's not accurate. The kingdom has split about 300 years before Jeremiah, but but uh, Israel had kind of gone into Assyrian captivity about 100 years before Jeremiah, about 100 years. I don't have the dates written down in front of me. But here's the thing. It, some uh, Because I think I've received a number of emails, and I think even had people at church ask something like this, well, wait, why is, is Israel being mentioned if they're in captivity? Remember, the key, the Israel as the northern kingdom, in a sense, no longer exists. They've gone into captivity, but obviously there are still people of Israel. They're still individuals. They're still people of Israel around. And so sometimes there may be a message to the people left from Israel. It's not like the kingdom ended and everyone died. No, they're still around. So in a a roundabout sense, you should be able to make sense of that, hopefully. Hear ye the words of the house of Jacob and all the and all the families of the house of Israel. Thus saith the Lord, what iniquity have your fathers found in me that they are gone far from me and have walked after vanity and are become vain. All right, now this is God asking, and this applies to the North, applies to the South, applies to all of Israel, right? Hey, what have, what did you, what, what did I do wrong? What did you find wrong in me that you, that you walked away from me and have walked after vanity and are become vain? Now, those are powerful words and should be convicting. They can, she can ask you and me every single day. What is it about God that you're willing to walk away from God to go pursue this or go to pursue that or go to pursue this? Well, clearly you say, well, I don't think there's anything wrong with God. Yeah, but you don't believe God is either sufficient or adequate or God is not making you content and you're going after whatever it could be. What, what is it with, what is lacking in God? That you are saying, no, God, I'm going to go chase this. And look, they're chasing that which is vanity and they become vain. Can we say, we, we constantly say what we worship is what we become, right? But what we pursue, what we chase after. Well, if you pursue or chase after vanity, you become vain. 
Then we read uh, Jeremiah 2, 5. Neither said they, where is the Lord that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, that led us through the wilderness, through a land of deserts and of pits, through a land of drought and of the shadows of death, through a land that no man passed through and where no man dwelt. Now, now basically this is, they're, not only have they walked away from God, not only are they pursuing that which is vain, they've stopped calling upon God. Nobody's asking, where is the Lord that brought us up out of the land of Egypt? They're not even calling upon God. They're not even worried about where God is. They don't even care. God has left their thoughts and their pursuits and their desire. Verse seven. So so they they stop, you know, asking where God is. And he talks about all the things God had done for them. He brought you. Israel into a land, uh, brought you into a plentiful country to eat the fruit thereof and the goodness thereof. But when you entered, you defiled my land and made my inheritance an abomination. God did all of this for you. You get, you come in and then what did you do? You just start corrupting everything. You start turning everything into an abomination because they start turning to things other than God. The priest said not Where is the Lord? So not only did the people stop asking where God is, now the religious leaders stop asking where God is. The priest, the priest are like, they don't no longer ask where is the Lord. And they that handle the law knew me not. The pastors also transgressed against me and the prophets prophesied by Baal and walked up their things that do not profit. Everyone, all of Israel, the people and the religious leaders had basically abandoned God and was pursuing that which does not profit. That, that I hope, I cannot stress this enough, that hopefully is convicting to you. How are you pursuing that which does not profit? Verse 9. Now, I had no idea verse 9 was going to become kind of one of, this is not the verse that I, that I want to focus on tonight, but we need to spend some time with it. This is, this is one of the, I guess, one of the good things about, um, you know, being able to podcast and being able to go live whenever we want and, and being able to do the study any way we want. I mean, I know, I know I've kind of placed a time stamp on us, but the good thing is I said, I've said this over and over. If you email me, if there's a problem, all you got to do, and I'll just turn on the microphone and address it. I thought more people would ask about verse nine. I think one person asked about verse nine, but we heard when we reviewed the sermons or the teaching from Dr. J. Vernon McGee, he went with an approach to verse nine that was absolutely baffling to me. A number of people have uh, um, have emailed me about this. I thought, uh, no, I think one person did, or I can't remember. A number of people, I think, emailed me about this, but I thought more would. I can't. I can't remember exactly if that was the verse, but there was there was some. I thought more people would ask about verse nine, or 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 at least get it. I I I I. There's just. I don't understand the issue with verse nine, but Dr. J. Vernon McGee clearly indicated and went with the idea that it's just confusing to me. So everyone's basically going after that, which has no profit. They're going after that, which is vain and they're becoming vain, right? That which is vanity and they're becoming vain. So then we read in verse nine, Jeremiah two, nine, wherefore, wherefore, okay, now based on, based on all of this, all of these people are walking away from God. Wherefore, I will yet plead with you, saith the Lord, and with your children's children will I plead. Now, some ask the question, like, 
like, why, why is God doing this? Others, um, I, I can't remember how it, I would have to go back through all my emails, but we heard from Dr. J. Vernon McGee. He interprets Jeremiah 2.9. He interpreted Jeremiah 2.9 as God is like, I'm going to plead with you. I'm going to beg you. I'm going to like, no, 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 please come back to me. Please don't forget me. Please don't walk after that, which is vain. And I don't believe that's the correct way to interpret it. Or at least I think we should challenge ourselves. We looked up the Hebrew word and realized it was more of like contending with, striving with. And one translation puts it this way, Hebrew or Hebrews, Jeremiah chapter two, verse nine. Therefore, I will bring a case against you again. This is the Lord's declaration. Most commentators seem to indicate this is not so much I'm begging you and I'm pleading you. I'm going to bring a case against you. I'm going to lay out my chart. Look, I don't look. What, what did you find wrong in me? The person who did all of this for you, he's asking kind of a rhetorical question. Hey, what did you find in me? Or you could say maybe he's not asking such a rhetorical question. Remember, we talked about all the different options. Maybe he's saying, come on, tell me, what did you find wrong in me? He's giving them an opportunity, think about it, for them to bring their case against him. Hey, look, here's all the things I did for you. Why did you forget me? Why Why did you stop calling upon me? Why did you start walking after that which it has no profit? Come on, tell me, give me, plead your case against me. Okay, you won't? Well, I'm going to plead my case against you. I'm going to lay out my my case against you. I don't think this is pleading. And so I, 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 on one hand, I thought maybe more people would ask the question, wait, what is happening here? Some did ask the question. Some assumed that it was like he's begging. Dr. J. Vernon McGee went more with that direction. I don't think he's pleading and begging. I think he's like, okay, you had a chance to lay your charge against me. Now I'm going to lay out my case against you. That's the way I think we should read it. By all means, you can give me your thoughts there. All right, but here we go. He then tells them, for pass over the Isles of Chittim and see and send unto Kedar and consider diligently and see if there be such a thing. Hath a nation changed their gods, which are yet no gods, but my people have changed their glory for that which doth not profit. Now, immediately when you start reading, you see he's not begging He's laying out his charge. Hey, guys, go look at the other nations. Do they abandon their God for that which isn't God? Now, it's asking more in a hypothetical way. He's like, you know, if they had the true God, would they abandon the true God for a false God? Would they go for a God which is no God? Well, why are you turning from a real God to that which isn't God, to that which is of no profit? He says, he then says, uh, verse 12, Jeremiah 2, 12, be astonished, O ye heavens, at this and be horribly afraid. Be ye very desolate, saith the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. For my people have committed two evils. About to drop my Bible here. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me the fountains of living waters, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. 
He's laying out his charge against them. I think that's the only way to understand Jeremiah 2.9 is, is that, hey, not that I'm begging you, I'm going to lay out my charge against you. He gave them a chance to tell them what, what did they find wrong with him. And now he's going to tell them what I have found. You've committed two evils. You've forsaken me, the fountains of living water, and hewn out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. When are you out there digging a well that's not going to hold any water? You're like, you know what? Forget God. I'm going after this. Is it really going to fill up with water? Are you really going to be happy? Are you really going to be satisfied? Or what is it going to lead to? Brokenness? Despair? What is it going to lead to? Is Israel a servant? Is he a home-born slave? Why is he spoiled? The young lions roared upon him and yelled, and they made his land waste. His cities are burned and without inhabitant. Now, he asked kind of some questions. We've talked about these questions. We're not going to go into great detail. But hey, are you a servant? Are you a home-born slave? Now, I think the point is, no, you're, you're my chosen. You're my son, you're my child, you're my chosen, you're my, you're something special. You're not just a a common servant. So then why have you been spoiled or corrupted? Why are the young lions roaring upon you and making your land waste and your cities are burned without inhabitant? Why is all this happening to you? It shouldn't be happening to you. Also, the children of Noph and Taphanus have broken the crown of thy head. Hast thou not procured this unto thyself? And that thou hast forsaken the Lord thy God, whom has led thee by the way. God has done all of this for you. You've turned away from God. And now you basically are looking like a nation that's just basically a servant, just basically a slave. Because everyone's coming in and destroying you and, and doing these things to you. And now, why hast, what hast thou to do in the way of Egypt to drink the waters of Sihor? Or what hast thou to do in the ways of Assyria to drink the waters of the river? Why are you going after Egypt or Assyria? Why are you doing this? Your own wickedness shall correct thee and thy backsliding shall reprove thee. Know therefore and see that it is an evil thing and bitter that thou hast forsaken the Lord thy God and that my fear is not in thee, saith the Lord God of hosts. All right. Now I can put that Bible down. And we'll take a second to just think this all through. All right. He's laid out his charge against them. He has clearly articulated the situation they are in. He's clearly shown them the things that have happened to him. Now, we could argue some of these things may be future, but he's speaking of them as past because they are certain. We can get up to all the timing. But clearly, Israel has walked away from God. They're pursuing those things of no profit and are vain. All right? So, in Jeremiah 2, 9... Right. And again, I, I apologize that I don't exactly have how all the emails have read, but I have had emails that have either misunderstood the pleading or I've had emails that have asked other questions and ignored Jeremiah 2.9 as if maybe there isn't a problem. I, I don't know exactly what I was. Maybe I was expecting more people to possibly ask. Maybe I was expecting more people to at least be curious. I don't know. I had lots of different expectations. I mean, there's lots of verses I thought I was going to get more emails on. Let's just make it that way. There's lots of verses that I thought people would be like, well, what about this? And what about this? And, and there wasn't. And Jeremiah 2.9 was, I got some, 
But then, yeah, it was kind of this weird, like, well, I thought it was, no, well, maybe, maybe. And then when we heard Dr. J. Vernon McGee, I was like, man, we've got to address this. So in, in Jeremiah 2.9, God lays out his charge against them. And we just read all of his charges against them. They're very clear. It's very specific, right? Just as prior to that, he said, hey, what did I do wrong? Giving them the opportunity for them to uh, express their case against God. Now, that brings us down to verse 20. Jeremiah 2, 20. Jeremiah 2, 20. For of old time, I have broken thy yoke and burst thy bands, and thou saidest, I will not transgress, when upon every high hill and under every green tree thou wanderest, playing the harlot. For of old time, I have broken thy yoke. Who has broken the yoke? If we read it in a different translation, it reads this way. For long ago, I broke your yoke. I tore off your chains. You insisted I will not serve. That's Jeremiah 2.20. For long ago, I broke your yoke. I tore off your chains. You insisted I will not serve. Is that God breaking their yoke, their chains to free them? And then Israel said, we are not going to serve. Or is it them breaking off God's chains in the sense that they rebelled against him? Who's speaking? What is going on here? Well, if you look up the commentaries, you're going to notice a lot of things here. Let me just start. I'm just going to start going through different commentaries. All right. I have broken thy yoke better with the Septuagint and the Vulgate. Thou hast broken thy yoke. Cast off all allegiant allegiance and restraint. The authorized version, which follows the received Hebrew reading, may however be understood as referring to the deliverance of Israel from the Egyptian bondage. So it seems the uh, Septuagint and the Vulgate is you, thou, hast broken your yoke. You've cast off all allegiance and restraint. It's almost like, hey, guys, you have just broken off all allegiance to me. You have thrown off any restraint and you're just doing whatever you want. Well, others are like, no, 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 no. God is saying, hey, guys, I delivered you from Egypt. And then you said, that's it. We're not going to serve. So is it, is God saying, guys, you threw off all restraint? Or is it God saying, hey, guys, remember I delivered you and then you turned against me? Well, what is, how do we understand Jeremiah 2.20? Another one uh, says, I have broken thy yoke and burst thy bands. Thou hast is doubtless right. In other words, thou, you guys, you broke your yoke, right? Or you broke thy yoke and burst thy bands. So they say that the Septuagint and Vulgate, they say that's the the first way to understand this, all right? Um, Another commentary 
uh, for of old time, I have broken thy yoke. That is, I have delivered thee from the bondage and tyranny that thou was under of old time in Egypt. So they go with more of just the way it's, it's translated. Um, here we go. Uh, the pulpit commentary. Here a new section begins. I have broken burst. That is grammatically a possible rendering, but inconsistent with the second person in thou saidest. Unless indeed, with other commentaries, we suppose that something has fallen out of the text between the first and second clause of the verse. The best critics are agreed that we should follow the Septuagint and Latin Vulgate in rendering thou hast broken and burst. All right. So they say we should go with the Septuagint and the Latin Vulgate. Um, uh, it says the Hebrew should be appointed uh, as the second person feminine, a form common in Jeremiah. Thou hast broken. So the Septuagint and the sense requires it. All right. So, uh, Let me see if we any more commentary. For of old time, I have broken thy yoke and burst thy bands. The yoke of the people, as the Targum expresses it, that was upon their necks and their bands in which they were bound by them, referring to the deliverance of them of old from Egyptian bondage. So when you go through the commentaries, guess what you find? It seems the majority believes that this should be read like this. Jeremiah 2.20. For long ago, you broke off the yoke. You tore off the chains. You insisted that you will not serve. And then on every high hill and under every green tree, you lay down like a prostitute. In other words, you resisted any of my restraint. You resisted anything I told you you couldn't do. Any restraint. You broke it. Or as the King James puts it, for of old time, you have broken thy yoke and burst thy bands and have said, I will, I will not transgress and said us, I will not transgress when upon every high hill and under every green tree, thou wanderest playing the harlot. Now, the King James kind of adds, like, I will not transgress, meaning I guess, hey, I'm going to do what I want, and it's not going to be wrong. There's lots of different ways of looking at that. It says, uh, others say, uh, now, well, see, it depends on how you translate it. If this is them coming out of Egypt, others translate it, them saying, hey, when, God, when, when you, when I delivered you from Egypt, you were like, we will not sin. They put on a good show and then immediately started rebelling. Um, if you go the other direction, um, let's see here how others say this. Um, thou said, I will not transgress, perhaps following a various reading adopted by the Septuagint, uh, the Vulgate and Luther, I will not serve. So others saying it's not, I will, I, they're not saying I will, I will not transgress. They were saying I will not serve thee. So there's lots of variations here in how to read this, right? So we, the basic two ideas is, is this basically Judah 
that the, the Judah's words are being recorded here as or Israel's words are being recorded here. Hey, guy, hey, we're, we broke off or just more, not so much their words, what they've done. They decided we're breaking off all restraint. And, and then you went and prostituted yourself. You threw off all restraint. This is God basically saying he's still laying out his charge against them. You basically any restraint that I put on you, you took, you threw it away. You threw it away. Any, any restraint, anything I gave you, you threw it away. You tore it off. And then you went and you prostituted yourself. Or is this God saying, hey, guys, 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 I, I set you free. And then you said, hey, we're not going to serve. We're going to do what we want. How do you approach it? Now, on one hand, it doesn't change the overall meaning of the book doesn't have a profound impact on anything, but it does, you, you put it this way, in this book, when you're trying to follow the narrative, you're trying to understand, you want to ensure, trying to still maintain who's speaking, who's doing what, because the, the longer you can maintain that understanding, then the longer you have an idea what's going on. Once it starts getting murky, you're like, wait a minute, who's talking to whom there? Who did what? The minute you lose that, then you start losing the flow of the narrative and it's only going to get more convoluted and more complicated as you press on. So this is very early and this is why I've tried to emphasize. First, we got to make sure when he says, I will plead with you, what is what is God talking about? And if all the next section is God laying out his charge, then pleading is not begging you to come back. He's laying out his charge. And then when you get to 220, do we just say he's stopped laying out his charge or he's continuing to lay out his charge? And if he's still continuing to lay out his charge, then, then how do you read that first part? Now, I'm kind of waiting for an answer. See, this is where I want to do it in front of a congregation, because if I then I, I could be looking at everybody and people like either they'd be like, I don't understand. I don't understand. What are my options again? Like that, I'm assuming somebody would say that or somebody would be like, it is this way. It's not the other way. There would be something like that. Which way do you think it goes? Which way? I got all these Bibles here. If you hear, if you hear all that, that's all all my Bibles. I keep messing with all. Of them. I got multiple translations here. All right. Okay. Someone says I understand, but I do not know the answer. Okay. Well, that's good. That's good. Uh, you lose a hundred points for not knowing the answer. Okay. Um, and. Uh, Okay. Oh, they said they do know. Then they corrected themselves. Do not know. All right. So anyone who doesn't know, just just subtract 500 points from your score and you've already failed the study. You should just stop. I'm joking. I'm joking. Um, yeah, that um, I don't think anybody really knows. All right. Uh, okay. Someone's been reading it as God broke it but didn't know there was another option, yes. This comes to the never-ending drama between the Septuagint and the Masoretic text, all right? Uh, um, and that that's... Um, I, and that's the drama that I don't want to get too much into because like in every passage, we'd be like, well, the Septuagint reads it this way. The Masoretic reads it this way. The Vulgate reads it this way. And and 
whenever there are certain big issues, we have to address it. So I don't know how much it impacts. I think it really, like some of those commentaries says 220 starts a new section. Well, is it a new section or is God still laying out his charge and starting in verse nine? That's, this comes out how you break it down. Now, remember the way your Bible has it, maybe breaking down in certain sections. Well, that's, that's more the trend. That's not how it was written in the original. So when you see 2.9, and if you understand 2.9, that God is going to not plead, he's going to lay out his charge against them. How long does he lay his charge out against them? Now, he could still be laying out his charge against him, and you could read it as, hey, guys, a long time ago, I delivered you, and guess what? You wouldn't serve me. Or does he say, hey, guys, you have broken off all restraint against me and went and prostituted yourself. Either way, I think it can be read as, as, as still him laying out his charge. So I, I don't think we should say it's a new section. I think it's a continuation of God laying out his charge. That's my own personal feelings. You may disagree, but I think it's important. So let's do this. Uh, what I did is I went to the new sermon audio site, the beta site. I went, I clicked on scripture. They have this cool way you can look up anything by scripture. I went to Jeremiah 2, selected verse 20, boom, looked for one of the first sermons, grabbed it, downloaded it, and we're just going to see what they say. I have no idea what they're going to say. Have no idea. Don't even know how much of this we'll have to review. We're just going to see if if they say anything about the possible issue here in 220 and see if they think it... uh, if it matters, if you haven't gone to the new Sermon Audio site, I think if you just go to sermonaudio.com, now a little option says check out the beta site. Go to the beta site. Go to Scripture. Man, they've real. it's really awesome. I mean, millions of sermons. And you could just pick the chapter. You can pick the book, the chapter, and the verse you want a sermon on. I mean, it is. It's really awesome. They now have connected it to the Blue Letter Bible. I think now option commentaries is an an audio Bible. There's a lot going on there. So hopefully you're utilizing uh, such an amazing tool. Um, I wish more people used it. uh, But uh, yeah, definitely use it. But here we go. We just, we pick this out. Let's see what happens here. An amazing thing. This is I'm convinced that this is God's time for us to study this book. I really can't wait to get towards the end of Jeremiah, uh, where I see all these things building up to this. Uh, there's some just amazing things that happen, and, and I just I see us in the people of Israel, you know, the people of Judah. Um, you know, we we are not as faithful as we should be, even with the Lord. Christians, you know, we tend to. Tend to slack. Reminds me of this this song written by Robert Robinson. Um, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. What's the name of that? What is that song? Is it Come Thou Found? Anyway, Come Thou Found of Every Blessing. And that's a great old hymn. And uh, How many people can relate to that? Prone to wander. You know, I, I wasn't asking for hands. All these hands went up. God bless you people for being so humble and so tender. Uh, but we can relate to that, can't we? And so we can relate to what's happening here. Uh, I do. Lo- I do love when a church is painfully honest. How many here can relate to being prone to wander? And all the hands go up, and even the pastor's like, "Okay, okay, I didn't mean to. I didn't mean to get confession going on." But what I love is whenever you get Christians who'll be honest, 
I'll be like, man, I'm sinning this way, this way, this way, this way, this way, this way. I'm prone to wander. I'm wandering. I'm falling. I'm sinning in thought, word, and deed. When Christians are brutally honest, that's what you get. But then at the same time, we're like, now, because you're a Christian, you've now been given the power and you've been set free from sin. And basically you should never sin again because you have divine power. But when you then get, when Christians are not talking about the power we supposedly have, then they will admit, I sin, sin, sin. Well, wait a minute. On one hand, you say you have all of this power to basically stop sinning. But then when we're not talking about that, you admit how much you sin. How come Christians never realize there's something wrong with your theology. On one hand, you basically say, you basically, you're new, you're now a new creature in Christ. The old is gone. Everything is new. And that is true. Practically, you now have power. You've been set free from sin. You can stop sinning. You now can obey God. And then when you're not preaching that, everybody's like, well, you know, yeah, I sin here. I'm prone to wonder. I fall. I, like, when did, when did the two worlds come together? And you're like, we're, we're a walking contradiction, because you're mixing up the reality of your position with the reality of your practice. And I don't know why we constantly make these claims that are not true in any church. In every church, the people are just like the people of Judah and Israel. We prostitute ourselves. We pursue that which is of no profit. We become vain. Over and over, we backslide. We're, we are uh, the spiritual harlot. Over, I mean, all of these things. We're all of these things. Uh, but let's adopt the heart of Jeremiah, who broke because God's people were so enticed by the gods of the Canaanites. And it was like it was God's biggest fear. Now, I know God knows the end from the beginning and he understood. You know, but when he challenged Israel initially to go into the promised land, he gave them specific instructions not to embrace their idolatry and their false gods. And I just have to say, he gave them specific commands to reveal to them that they could not keep them and they never would keep them. Like, uh, once again, I, I just, whenever people preach the law, that I always, it drives me crazy because I always preach the law. Hey, I mean, God knew the beginning from the end, but he gave them these instructions. Well, I know he gave them those instructions, but what was the purpose of the law? To reveal their sin and condemn them that at some point someone would say, we can't do this. We can't do this. We have failed and fell. Every generation fails. Every generation going all the way back from the call of Abraham, all everyone, sin, sin, failure, failure, failure. Fa the entire Old Testament is a never ending story of failure over and over and over and over again until finally you open up the book of Matthew and you're like, they will call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And you're like, finally, finally, the answer has come. And then we Christians come along and go, no, you can do it. You can do it. You can do this, do this, do this. You can do it. You can do it. And it's like, no, we keep failing and failing and failing and failing. We need Jesus to save us from our sins and we need his obedience because we never will have it. And yet they did. So here we have uh, Jeremiah. Now, keep your place in Jeremiah too. I want to go back 
to Proverbs chapter 5 briefly, just as a little introduction. Proverbs chapter 5, and uh, I'm not going to read much of it. It's there for you to read. I'm going to try and be really discreet. Um, It's almost like the book, the Song of Solomon, is, um, it's a book about marriage. It's a book about the love and um, physical intimacy between a man and a woman. Uh, which the world has corrupted today. Uh, we use the three-letter word that you know just describes anything related to physical a person's physical desires, and we've really cheapened it. Um, but to to God, that's a holy thing. The physical relationship between a man and a woman is not something to be shunned. You read the the Song of Solomon, very explicit, but in a marriage context. It's okay. In fact, it's holy in a marriage context. And in and, and Proverbs chapter 5, uh, pro- a lot of Proverbs, Proverbs 7, Proverbs 5, some other Proverbs, it's Solomon warning his son about the dangers of sexual immorality and how important it is that he understands that these, these drives that you have as a young man. <laughs> you, oh, come on. I can't be the only one laughing right now. Do you not find it utterly absurd that Solomon would warn anyone about the dangers of sexual immorality? Well, I mean, come on. He had how many wives and how many concubines? I mean, would <laughs> the absurdity of that, right? Now you can say, well, he learned better than anyone. He, I guess he did, right? I guess, it, hey, hey, son, I want you to realize, don't be like dad. Well, who's that? Well, that, that's, well, that's my concubine and that's concubine number two and concubine number three. Well, what's their names? Look, look, son, I've got so many women. I can't tell you all their names. I can't even keep, I don't even know the names of my wives, much less all my concubines. What do you expect of me? Now, son, do not engage in sexual immorality. Right? I, I, I mean, I don't know. Like, I, am I the only one? I know preachers never stop to go, well, that is, that, <laughs> I don't know. And even when you read the Song of Solomon, you're like, oh, it's this beautiful picture of the relationship between a man and a woman. Which one of his women? I, 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 okay. All right. I, I digress. I digress. Uh, we're put there by God and they're to be, to be fulfilled in a God-honoring way. And so look what he says, uh, partly, uh, in Proverbs chapter 19, uh, in fact, we're not going to read the beginning of the verse, but he refers to a loving uh, deer, the loving hind is a deer, and a graceful doe, the, the word roe speaks of a doe. Um, and this was something that was very common in Asian, Arab, Persian poetry, where the gazelle, the antelope, the deer species, as it were, were often used in poetry to describe images of beauty. And that's how it's used here. And it is challenging a husband uh, about his relationship with his wife. And in the second part of verse 19, it commands a husband, it says, Be thou ravished always with her love. And I love that word ravished. Ravished. It means to be exhilarated, to be enraptured. One commentary, uh, one lexicon said, the word literally comes from a word which means intoxicated. 
And, uh, you know, I still remember, and, and you men would relate, I, you know, I can't relate, I, I don't understand. I know that women um, like the attention of men, <laughs> but I just know uh, that when I was a young boy, I was brought up Catholic, and, and uh, I had moments where I wanted to be a priest. I even set up a little altar in my bedroom, and I would pray the rosary, and I had a statue. And, uh, you know, there were times where I felt religious. And um, don't mock me about this, okay? Uh, I would even use my G.I. Joes as priests sometimes. <laughs> and then I got to an age where I found out about girls. And, uh, you know, if you're a priest, you can't marry. Uh, and so that took that off the table, you know? It took that off the table. Because I was attracted to, the, to females, just like all men are. In fact, that's why I got married. I married the prettiest woman on the face of the earth. And you men, I hope you feel the same too, if you're married. Um, but here's the key. Look at Proverbs chapter 5. It says, be thou ravished always with her love. That's a command. To be enthralled, to be intoxicated. And then the next verse. Why wilt thou, my son, be ravished with a strange woman and embrace the bosom of a stranger? He was speaking of the marriage covenant and how important it is when a man and a woman enter into this relationship that it be a consecrated covenant. That men, don't be ravished. The, the way you should, you know, when it comes to your wife, you've got, you know, indulge, embrace, follow the passion that puts you there. And again, I'm not going to go into great detail. But then the next challenge. Why? Don't be ravished with another woman. It's a violation of the covenant. A very serious thing to those, those feelings and those desires that you have towards women. Your, your wife should not be directed towards someone that's not your wife. Very serious. Now the reason I say that, and the reason I take you to this verse... It's because God understood how he created men and women. And he understood the need for, you know, a man will leave his father, join unto his wife, they will become one flesh. He knew that that relationship, that marriage unit is important to the fiber of society. Something that is eroding quickly in America, sadly. But he knew it is instrumental for a healthy family and for a healthy society. He knew that men and women can relate to this. And so when he's trying to reach Israel, he would use the terms of romance, like a man and a woman. In fact, he got so desperate to reach his people that, remember I said that Israel fell about a hundred years ago? Long ago, when when. We had the divided kingdom, Israel and Judah. God was reaching both of them, sending prophets to warn them, you are facing judgment. Now at this time, Israel had already fallen. They were in Assyria. Assyria had captured them. But before they fell, he sent prophets to warn them. One of those prophets was Hosea. hundred years ago, approximately, before Jeremiah came. And God understood, okay, these people, I created them, I know how they operate. They can relate to the importance of being faithful to, to your marriage. 
These people know when, when a woman isn't faithful or a man isn't faithful, it's heartbreaking. And so he did something very radical. And he, he had Hosea do something unimaginable because he wanted Israel to know how important his relationship with his people were. And so he instructed Hosea to marry a prostitute, Gomer. And he wanted Israel to realize, you know, Hosea would become a living illustration of how God felt as Israel was apostatizing and committing spiritual adultery by going after false gods. And that drove the point home. God meant business. He, he, He wants to stress how important it is that you and I realize this covenant relationship with Him is so important. Sadly, that living illustration, which, uh, you know, Hosea, the challenge for Hosea was to love a woman that wasn't faithful, and he did that. Just like he was the picture of God. You know, no matter how many times Israel went after, you know, whoredom and idolatry, spiritual idolatry, he still loved them. So now we fast forward 100 years, and we've got Jeremiah. And God's faithfulness to Israel, I think this is very important from when you start talking eschatology. If God just did away with Israel, just said, I'm done. I made these promises with you. I'm done. I'm going to take these promises I gave to you and I'm going to give them to another supposed Israel, a spiritual Israel, and you're just finished. And I'm never going to come back and fulfill those promises to you. I'm going to give them to the church. Then that whole image is destroyed. The whole thing is because they were unfaithful, God remained faithful. And even though they were set aside for the church, that God will at one point, all Israel will be saved and he will fulfill those promises to them, demonstrating that he has always remained faithful to them, no matter how unfaithful they were to him. To me, that's the only way the story really works. If you just say, God, well, just God just said, well, you've been unfaithful enough. I'm going to throw you out. Well, then why would he throw all of us out? Because we've all been faithful. Look, as, as many times as Israel played the unfaithful wife, the harlot, as many times, we all play the unfaithful wife, the harlot over and over and over to God every day, every month, every year and thought and word, and desire, and feeling, and in action, internally and externally. We have. Now, now, using that illustration in Proverbs 5 about going after the strange woman, yeah, I think it's a great, I mean, it's brilliant, because it's going to fit right back here with Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 20, where they break up, they, whoever is breaking the, the, the yoke here, we can, we've already had that discussion, guess what they're going to do? They're going to go play the harlot in Jeremiah 2.20. They're going to play the harlot. They're going to commit spiritual adultery. And that right there, you talk about spiritual growth, we should all be convicted in how we play spiritual, how we are a spiritual harlot, how we prostitute ourselves. From God. How do we do that? Well, let's see what they have to say here. And uh, he is, he wants... To- Israel to relate. So we look at Jeremiah chapter 2, beginning in verse 20. For of old time, he says, For of old time I have broken thy yoke and burst thy bands, 
And thou saidest, I will not transgress, when upon every high hill and under every green tree thou wanderest, playing the harlot. Playing the harlot, the prostitute, the unfaithful woman, the immoral woman. So he's using this again, this whole picture. Of old time, he says, I have broken thy yoke and burst thy bands. What is that a reference to? He broke the yoke, he, the bands? Um, what he's talking about is that he's talking about, obviously, about their idolatrous worship. But it goes back to the statement in chapter 1 where he says, you know, he uses the word espoused. Again, romance, husband and wife, these pictures. And uh, he wants them to know that, uh, that he broke the yoke. Uh, it's, it's a figure of a, a beast who had a yoke to... Uh, in order for them to be manageable, so like they could plow the field, they would put a big yoke on them, and that the yoke is often a picture of either a heavy weight or something that binds us. For example, in the New Testament, God tells Christians, be not unequally yoked with unbelievers. If you're a born-again believer, and you yoke together, in other words, if you get married to someone that's not saved, that would now, if it's an if it's an image, if it's because in some and like in some traditional weddings, I think even within the Catholic Church, they'll kind of place the yoke over the bride and the groom. I, I think they still do that. They'll place the yoke. Well, if this is a, if this yoke is a picture of basically like marriage, then it wouldn't be God breaking the yoke, right? Wouldn't it be Israel? You broke the yoke. You burst the bonds and said. I will not serve. Like then, then is he, it's like he's, which, which way is he going with this? Would it be God breaking the yoke of their marriage? Is he saying God broke the yoke of their marriage or they broke, who broke the yoke? If it's the yoke dealing with marriage and faithfulness, they broke it. They're like, we're breaking the yoke. We will not serve. I know the King King James says, um, I will not transgress. But if, if it's Israel breaking the yoke, then it's not, I will not transgress. We have to go back to the Latin Vulgate or the uh, Septuagint. I will not serve. So was it Israel and Judah like, we broke the yoke. Well, you place this yoke in a sense of marriage. We've been married, wedded to you, espoused to you, and we're breaking it. We're not going to serve, and we're going to go, well, we're going to go be a prostitute. Let's see if he, it's weird because I thought he was going, I thought that's the direction he was going to go, but, well, but he said God broke it. So did God break the marriage yoke? Let me see what he says here. Would be an unequal yoke that God challenges us not to do. If you're, if you're, you know, if you're saved before you're married. Now again, people get married after they're saved and then they get saved and their wife's not saved or the wife gets saved and the husband's not saved. Uh, and that, that's a matter which needs incredible prayer. But he's talking about this. In fact, listen to what he said. Let's go way back in our minds. You don't need to turn there. I'll quote it. But we go back, way back to Leviticus chapter 26 when God speaks to Israel. So this was before the, their, their time in Egypt and before their bondage, he says. or This is actually after Egypt. He says this in verse 13. I am the Lord your God which brought you forth out of the land of Egypt, that ye should not be their bondmen, 
and I have broken the bands of your yoke and made you go upright. Now, he's already mentioned in chapter 1. Okay, so he's using this more as a yoke of ser- as a servant, as a slave, and God broke them out of Egypt. I don't know why he did the marriage thing there. Like, he started using the marital marriage language. Hey, it's perfectly okay. I got all confused over the language in this episode over, wait, how many emails did I get? Which emails? Wait, did people say this? And then all of a sudden I realized, I don't even remember which emails I got about which thing. Okay. Then all of a sudden I got, I confused myself. So anyone can misspeak. I don't know if he, if, I don't know, like, it's, it's like he started going the marriage way, which then if he's going the marriage way, then this would be Israel saying, hey, this yoke of marriage, we're breaking it. We're going to go be a prostitute. If it's God breaking the yoke, then it's like you were a slave and I broke the yoke and I let you go. And you're like, we're never going to sin against you. And then, well, they turn into prostitutes. So how you go with this. He referred to the fact several times, I have delivered you. Remember that word, the Hebrew word, I delivered you, I delivered you. And here he's talking about that again. Of old time, I have broken thy yoke, burst thy bands. And then here was their response. They said, I will not transgress. So they, this was part of it. They entered into a covenant with him. Yes, Lord, we love you. We respond to that love. Like a woman that says, I do. We said, I do to, to Jehovah. And yet, sadly, the second part of verse 20, When upon every high hill and under every green tree thou wanderest playing the harlot. That is clearly a picture of the practices of the Canaanite idolatry, the false religion. Baal, when you see Baal, throughout the book of Jeremiah, you're going to see Baal. Baal was a false god, but it is in the plural. It's literally many Baals. Uh, B-A-A-L, that was a false god of the Canaanites. And it was everywhere rampant in Canaan. They had different kind of versions of it. That's why it is a plural term. And sometimes the word Baal in the book of Jeremiah isn't just referring to only Baal, but they also worship Moloch. They also worshiped Ashtaroth. Those were some of the primary gods of the Assyrians and a plethora of other gods. And sometimes in the book of Jeremiah, they'll just refer to Baal as false. They're false gods that the Canaanites worshipped, and that when Israel went into the promised land, and they saw the nations around them worshipping this false god, these false gods, they became enamored. Now we'll stop there. I would challenge you on your Sermons 2.0 app, or the Sermon Audio Uh, website or the Sermon Audio Beta website. Look for Enticed by Steve Lyon. L-Y-O-N. Enticed by Steve Lyon. Listen to the rest of that sermon um, and you can hear the rest of the things he has to say. He didn't really deal with the controversy there in Jeremiah 2.20. I thought he was going to go with the idea they were kind of in a marriage relationship. They were yoked, right? Because he kind of used that imagery by going to Proverbs 5. I thought that's where he was going to go. And I'm like, oh, this is going to be interesting. You got the marriage yoke, right? That And some traditional weddings, they will place the yoke upon to. And then Israel, Judah was like, that's it. We broke the yoke. We're not going to serve. And we're going to go be prostitutes. But he then kind of, even though he spent that time going that direction, then he seemed to kind of reverse course and go, no, 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 this is God breaking the yoke. He broke the yoke from them being in bondage. 
Then they said, hey, we're not going to transgress. In other words, they entered into covenant with God. And then, then they turned around and played the harlot. Now, the message from this is obvious. In what ways are you playing the spiritual harlot? How are you prostituting yourself tonight against God? That is the question you can ask yourself. And you can do a little bit more work. You can do a little bit more work on Jeremiah 2, 20. There we go. That took longer than I thought. But we worked through a good bit, bit of section of, of Jeremiah 2. And hopefully I was able to lay out in some clarity the two possible options. And, well, you got to hear how one pastor approached it. I thought it was going in one direction. And then he said, whoo. It was like whoo, plot twist. Wait, 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 where are you going? Why, why did you go to, uh, why did you go to Proverbs 5? Why did you go to, you know, do not be unequally yoked and then, and then kind of go the other direction. Interesting. Now it's up to you to figure out. I wouldn't spend too much time with it, but you know, we, we want, we, that's an issue that I, like I said, I can't remember exactly how the emails work. Some people went with, wait, why is God pleading? And I'm like, that's not that kind of pleading. Uh, J. Vernon McGee was like, God is begging, God is pleading. Um, others, I, I, I think, I felt like others skipped it. So there was a lot of variation in some of the responses. But um, I hope now you have more clarity on Jeremiah 2.20. You at least know the options. And most importantly, you can look at yourself and go, wait, how are we? How are you? How am I playing the spiritual harlot and prostituting ourselves against God? There you go. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 20. Look up that sermon entice by Steve Lyon, L-Y-O-N, on the Sermons 2.0 app, the Sermon Audio app, or the Sermon Audio Beta app, or no, the Sermon Audio website, or the Sermon Audio Beta website, and uh, listen to the rest. There you go. Thanks for listening. Everyone have a good night. God bless.